Welcome to Employee of the Month. Here's your host, Katie Lazarus. Welcome back to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus, and I'm so excited to share with you my interview with Ms. Rachel Maddow. She's the host of The Rachel Maddow Show on MSNBC. It was also the name of her show on Air America. She's also the author of Drift, which received a Grammy nomination. And I think it's just crucial if you're going to write a book on national security that it receive a Grammy nomination. And luckily, hers made the cut. Such a joy to interview Rachel Maddow. She's brilliant and thoughtful and still has some humility, which it must be hard when you really are the smartest person in the room. Well, in the room with me. So I guess that wasn't like the bar wasn't set that high. I met Rachel because a dear, dear friend of mine uh, worked at Air America and was so inspired by Rachel and other commentators that she went off to Iraq to to work on democracy building. And sadly, her envoy was blown up. And that friend, Andy, is no longer with us. But I am so happy that a foundation has been created in her name called the Andy Foundation by her former boss, Jamie Horn, at Air America. And Rachel has tirelessly uh, volunteered for it, which is where I met her. Um, if you would like to give to the Andy Foundation or find out more about it, you can go to andifoundation.com. And I hope you will also enjoy my interview with Rachel Matta, which is coming up in five, four, three, two, one. I helped write that song. Rachel wrote that song. with. Tell, tell me the person you, you text messaged. Aaron McEwen um, and I were text messaging. I was in Baghdad and um, we were text messaging about a song she wanted me. She wanted me to do something with her at a benefit for um, oiled birds because of the Deepwater Horizon spill. And we ended up by text message via some dodgy satellite connection writing the lyrics to that song that ended up wow. at the like benefit for the birds. Wow. So it's about birds and oil and Baghdad. It's very you guys romantic. Did a very nice rendition. <laughs> Thank you. Thank it was you. beautiful, wasn't it? Yeah. Cool. Um, I, I'm going to segue to uh, speaking of Baghdad. Um, Rachel and I, I met because a friend of mine, Andy, worked for Air America and was so inspired by you and your work and um, many people at Air America that she wanted to go um, and get involved. And she um, went to Iraq and was sadly killed there. Um, and the only positive of that story, I would say, is that there is the Andy Foundation, and that is how Rachel and I met. We're doing benefits for them, and they support young women who care about democracy and care about um, getting great jobs, doing good work. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought it was fitting for this show to mention the Andy Foundation and just plug it if you get a chance to please. It's A N D I. It it's easy to look up. But yeah. I have no segue to the next part. Um, no, you did. There you go. <laughs> so I said, <laughs> so do you want to take it off? How do you deal with this suit part? It's so hot. I really, it's fitting, right? It's hot up here. Two wishes you got. Um, so you, I saw a picture of you in high school and you look like a John Hughes character um, with blonde hair and pearls. It's, you're dying of heat, right? Yeah, it's pretty hot up here. Yeah, it's okay. I'm always like this. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, you know, we could actually get you um, some water. Or something like that. If someone has a water or anything, we delicious. already got a sangria, but I think that was gone. May I have a? May I please? May I please have a beer? 
Um, yeah, in fact, beer. you can have better than a beer. Um, What's will, better than will, a beer? We will go. We will go backwards <laughs> through this segment. Um, Roberta, Roberta. I'm having the best time. Okay, good. I have no idea what's about Roberta to happen. Roberta is gonna come out with her um, cocktail. We're we're gonna ask you to make your cocktail, and we thought that this might be your favorite cocktail. This is my brother told me, so we can blame him if this is not the right thing. Okay. But we're gonna bring out a lot of spirits. And um, we were going to do this later, but we'll start now. I get to... Oh, this, this is, is from, very exciting. This is from... Hi, Roberta. Hello. Now, you can, you can just put it here. Or, or you can sit. That's cool. That's awesome. Um, well, first of all, to make this... I, I think before you make the drink, I thought you should put on my favorite gift from my mother that says I'd rather be reading Jane Austen. <laughs> Some of my pins from various activists. Pretty hot. This, these are my, some of my favorite pins. So, what would those women want? So th this is slash unemployed persons drink. Like we can't afford a. Uh, but I know you love to make cocktails. So now you can make yourself a drink. Is there a cutter? Is there a what do you call it? A cutter? We I think our, it's called we, knife. When you, when you don't have a job, you use your teeth. You're gonna. A cutter. Yeah, we got it. We got it. Look at you. You're peeling a line with your fingernails. We, we don't have money to spend on. Okay, that's all right. This is a teaspoon. I brought it from home. Thank you. <laughs> this is really. You know what we're going to do said here? It's going to be an unemployed person's cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually the first ingredient in any cocktail that I make at home because I'm so slow, I need to provide refreshment to people who are waiting for me to produce a cocktail. So every cocktail recipe in my cocktail recipe repertoire starts with, first, to open a beer. <laughs> that's, that's really good. It's open. Just squeeze it into that mason jar. Yeah. Like functional alcoholism here, am I? Okay. Okay, good. So I wanted to talk to you starting out. Oh, this is great. We'll do the interview while you do this and you can drink. Um, you won't feel distracted at all. Um, you described yourself as uh, anti-social meets jock in high school. Oh, wait. The only problem with this is you have to... Hmm. Okay. But it was a riveting... Hmm. You describe yourself as anti-social meets jock. What did that? What does that mean? It means that I played lots of sports in high school, which makes you think a specific thing about what I was like in high school. But I uh, wasn't like that. So I enjoyed athletic competition and did that obsessively, and that was the thing that I did in high school. But the rest of my life didn't reflect that aspect of my personality. You know what I'm saying? No, yeah, but yeah. I'm going with you. I'm trying to go with you, but I believe you. In the sense that if you if you didn't know that I played sports, you would just think that I was an antisocial person who got a lot of detention in high school. But got I a was lot of that person. Or detention or detention? Detention. Okay. Oh, a lot wow. of detention. detention. You, you were. I got a lot of detention. How did you get into Stanford? That's an excellent question. When I was a um, in first year in college, there was some sort of lawsuit about admissions. Thank you. Um, I'm just going to put that there for a second. Um, some sort of lawsuit about admissions, and for one day, 
everybody in my freshman class, or maybe everybody who was an undergrad at the time, as a result of the settlement of the case, uh, we were all allowed to go look at our admissions file. And you weren't allowed to take in a writing implement or you weren't allowed to make any copies. You couldn't take any notes and you couldn't copy it and you couldn't take it with you. But you were allowed to look at your file the way they judged you when you were applying and then you could look at the file and then leave. It was like being in a sensitive, compartmentalized information facility, but it was about your own life. And there were 1,400 people let into my freshman class in college and I learned that day that I was the fourth to the last person let in. <laughs> Which was kind of a fluke. It was because somebody on the in the admissions department, I was I, I sort of didn't really make the cut, but somebody in the admissions department liked the combination of different things that I had done, liked my essay, and said that I maybe had leadership potential. They were very fresh, and I got in. That's awesome. Yes, I had a I had a slightly similar experience. I came to a therapist appointment too early, and she had my notes out, and the notes the notes said that I left in a huff <gasps> from your previous. Yeah, and had you. I didn't remember, to be honest. Because you were so mad? Yeah. <laughs> is, it is it okay if I take off? The I'm hot. Yeah, you can totally take it off. I'm wearing take it like, all off, yeah. I'm wearing like 10 shirts. I, anyway, I feel like, I'm, the cocktails gonna, are done. Okay, good. This is it? I get this to drink it? this too? Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. You guys will get alcohol very soon in the bar. Mm. Did you know that this is what... <laughs> Not a drinker, huh? Here, just spit it right back in. You're not going to drink it. She's got a drinking problem. <laughs> yep. What is that? That was just booze. I didn't make anything. I didn't know what the other things... <laughs> see, I didn't... See how that isn't open? And that isn't open? You did open the lime. Waka, waka, waka. So this is, what, um, this is what George Washington drank. George Washington um, distilled rye but he drank Applejack. And this is the oldest, I think, continuingly, continuously operating um, uh, liquor company in the United States. It's Laird's Applejack from New Jersey. And he drank Applejack. Applejack is essentially apple whiskey. So it's not like an apple brandy. It's distilled the way that whiskey is, but the grain, instead of it being a grain, it's apples. And it tastes just like bourbon, and you hate bourbon. Yeah. I sort of warned you. <laughs> but I'm so glad you, you don't. Thought it was apple -y. I'm so glad you don't teach 16-year-old uh, boys because this, that didn't would, make any sense. About it would be lethal. Them. No, 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 no. They'd be like learning so much, and they'd be like, "I'm learning all of this history," and like, really, they're learning how to make amazing drinks. Yeah, or make girls spit stuff out. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even mean it like that. Why would I even know? <laughs> Wikipedia, me, yo. <laughs> <laughs> So I think that's a perfect segue to um, you were a an AIDS activist uh, in college. Mm -hmm. What inspired you to go into activism for AIDS at the time? And I think we grew up at a very similar age. Yeah. What year were you born? Well, I'm 19. So uh, <laughs> 1976. I was born in 73. You're my so brother's age. I was, um, and I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and um, so I was. 17 in 1990 and if you think about what was going on with the AIDS movement at that time I was coming out when I was 16 or 17 and so I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area it's 1989 and 1990 and I'm in the middle of 
you know, the, the end of my community, the end of what I see as my people and the culture that I thought that I would join when I grew up. Even though I grew up in the Bay Area, I grew up in a really conservative part of the Bay Area. But a very San Catholic Re- family? Very Catholic family, conserv- relatively conservative family, although not anymore. George Bush fixed that. Um, That's one thing he's good for. That's great. It's true. Like the number of people who Dick Cheney turned into radical leftists. <laughs> I mean, my dad was like a Reagan Democrat. Now my dad says stuff to me on the phone. I'm like, Ixnay, bad day. FBI? Can't say that in Pig Latin. Because um, <laughs> your phone's Because my, like, my dad's like, um, Cheney uh, moves him. But... So, but growing up at that time, I knew that I would have to leave my hometown and I knew that growing up sort of in the shadow of Berkeley, but more importantly, growing up in the shadow of San Francisco with this incredibly vibrant, visible gay community, that was my way out. That was my lifeline. And to see my lifeline withering and dying and even more important than that, um, I mean, I I think it is a galvanizing thing to know people who are as peers when you are a teenager who are dying in numbers. I mean, that is a that is a galvanizing thing. But to see a community come together in a way that makes the word community not an esoteric and abstract thing, but to see people fighting for each other and forming themselves essentially into a secular badass army to fight for their lives against a country that doesn't care. Um, it was very clear to me that that's the thing you're supposed to do. Like I, I, I felt like it gave me it, it, it was, I didn't feel like I made any choices. It was just very obvious to me that that's the thing that I should do. Problem was, is that I'm not a very good joiner. And so I was an AIDS activist for a long time. That was essentially what I did full time for more than a decade. But um, I was never great at being part of a larger group. And so I kept like having, not like schisms, because it was never confrontational, but I kept like finding more and more very discreet, individual-focused parts of AIDS activism to focus on that needed to be worked on by one person. <laughs> and then I would bring my findings back to the group and then leave. And, and you mentioned also that you had a competitive, you have a competitive nature and, and wanting to work on things that would actually lead to a direct outcome or a tangible outcome right away. Yes, I do not believe in the romance of the struggle. I believe in the joy of winning. Um, and so I don't, like... While it was motivating me to see people on the move, taking care of themselves, that, was, that just meant like, oh, there's a place where I can work to get something done. And so, but for, but for me, like, I don't, I don't want to be in a group of people talking about how we feel, and I don't want to have anybody try to raise my fucking consciousness. Like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not into it. Like, I'm, not, I'm just not wired that way. Tell um, us how you feel about that. <laughs> Would you pass me the talking pillow? <laughs> Um, I'm sorry that I made you drink that booze (laughs) it's the talking teaspoon (laughs) and then um, so but I I I, A I think that um, winning things is satisfying if you are not a process oriented person and I'm not but also if you are interested in this movement that you're part of not because you like movements and you like to be part of a thing and you like other people which you know uh, but rather because you are interested in being effective at using this group of people and their passion and their power as a thing to get something done, then you want more people to be attracted to the movement. And I think nothing attracts people to um, political work more than seeming like you're winning. And so you need concrete victories in order to get people's attention and make them want to be part of you. You have to be interesting, you have to be having a good time, and you have to win at least some of the time. And when you do win, you have to be good at talking about the story of how you won and why it mattered. 
and why it does matter and why you want to be on board the next time we win something. Is, is that what you did when you went in for your morning news girl audition? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. So you had left activism. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Yeah. Uh, you were sleeping um, for free on a friend's couch and had various odd jobs. And then they suggested you get a paying gig. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, so I, I was still doing activism. I was, I was working for the ACLU and the National Minority AIDS Council. I was still doing some stuff with ACT UP. I was doing a lot of work in Alabama and Mississippi. I was doing sort of prison reform stuff on the AIDS side of stuff. And my doctoral dissertation was not done. And it was on the subject of what I'd been doing in activism. It was on AIDS and prisons. And was that part of your Rhodes Scholarship? Yeah. I have one of those, too. Really? No. Mm. <laughs> I used it to get a to get a PhD, but I did I was I ran out of money in England and I wasn't done and I came back and I was doing activism and I was writing the thing and I wasn't getting it done. I moved to uh, New England because I thought I would be miserable, and I thought that would be a good way to motivate myself to finish this thing so I could leave this place where I was going to be miserable. And then I ended up falling in love and deciding I love dogs and I like snow and weather and all this stuff I never liked before. Poppy is your dog. Poppy is my dog. And so I, so I ended up staying there a lot longer than I thought I did to the point where I really needed work. And so then I started taking odd jobs. And the last oddest job I had was Morning Zoo radio, which led to my TV show. Okay, but so before that, how did you get, I just, because that seems like a dream job to me, so how did you get this morning news girl? Oh, you'd want to do morning, you'd want to do radio morning things? Like that sounds like amazing to me. Yeah, how did you get the audition? Well, it was an unranked tertiary western New England market where the station was in a strip mall, so it wasn't like, <laughs> there wasn't like, it wasn't like a high end, like, <laughs> like, there wasn't like a car service or anything. <laughs> um, I got minimum wage. But it was, and you had to go to work at 3.30 in the morning. But so but, how, let's go over the audition. I, so I lived with these, I was crashing with these friends and they were um, public school teachers and they'd get up very early and they used to listen to the morning zoo radio show, Dave in the Morning on WRNX in Holyoke, Mass. And um, the news girl was named Denise and Denise quit because it was minimum wage at 3.30 in the morning and they held an open on-air audition for Denise's replacement and I got the job. So I just, I called in and I did an on-the-phone audition and they asked me to come in for the in-person one and I came in for the in-person one and they liked me and then I started the next day. It was really weird. No, I think it sounds amazing. That's never happened to me. I've never gotten an audition. That's why I wanted to hear it. I had never gone to an audition before. You, but have you been on the radio? I mean podcasts like the employee of the month show it's one of the leading podcasts exactly, yeah. <laughs> yes, we're on the radio right now radio. yes it's amazing well. isn't it it's changing my life and i hope yours um <laughs> <laughs> and so how did that lead because that sounds like you're on a very mainstream show a very um, popular show for a broad audience how did you segue from there to a very niche channel air america well, I, I mean, the, the morning suit thing, like, I didn't think, I wasn't, like, looking for a career in broadcasting. I was doing a lot of, like, I had applied for a job at a video store that I did not get. This is just uh, making it worse. That this <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to talk you out of the idea that this was, like, I landed the big fish, the news girl in WRNX and the Dave in the Morning Show. Okay, that um, is good. Like, I didn't get the job at the, at the video store. I was, um, 
I had friends who uh, had a coffee roasting factory and I used to like, un I used to go when they got deliveries of coffee beans, I could lift heavy things. And so I'd go like unload semi trucks with 50 pound bags of coffee beans. And, but I was bad at everything. I tried to be like a handyman and I like installed this plumbing attachment wrong on the end of somebody's faucet and it blew up their faucet, but on the plumbing that was inside the wallboard and it like blew out the wall. I was horrible. I was bad at everything. Then I was doing deliveries and my car died. The, I was doing deliveries. The first day I'm doing deliveries, I have to call the president of the company to come pick me up while I'm on, on the side of the road in my dead 1983 sob. Remember when I said I had a working car? So it was really bad. So I, didn't, I wasn't trying to, it just was a gig. And I just liked it. I, they had me cover the news and then slowly they let me take sort of a bigger role in the show. But it was hosted by a comedian guy who was very funny and I was just supposed to laugh and add other stuff. And I can do that. Dave in the Morning is still out there. <laughs> One of the, we used to write jingles on Fridays for local shows, or for local businesses. What were, do you remember any of them? We did one um, for a hot tub company called East Heaven Hot Tubs, and we did it to the tune of Smoke on the Water, but it was Soak in the Water. We'll, and then the, the like bridge was, We'll Cook You Like Your Meat. <laughs> that was good. And we did, um, there was a Mexican place called um, Cha 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 that was doing uh, fancy brunches on the weekends. Yeah. Um, I mean, I it's don't know not it, just for Cinco de Mayo. We make our own pico de gallo, so put on a suit and a tie because every third Sunday there's brunch. Nice. <laughs> so then, so that led right to Air America. Well, was, it seems like Air America was this perfect bridge, though, at the time between um, doing radio and talking to people who may not have the same values as you, being in, able to talk to so many people. And then actually have something to say to them that you care about. And, and nobody knew what was going to happen with Air America when it started. Every, if you're, there's no reason to remember this unless you were involved in it. But in 2004, when Air America launched, it got a huge amount of publicity. Yes. It's like cover of the New York Times Sunday Magazine. And Al Franken was involved. And Janine Garofalo. And Liz Winstead is the founder of The Daily Show. And, and I wrote an article about it for Time Out New York that was huge. See? Yeah. <laughs> See? Um, and it, we didn't know if it was going to like take off and be this big deal. And it, got, it really did get a ton of publicity. And then it just didn't go anywhere. Um, it, people weren't wired. Liberals were not wired to listen to AM talk radio. I mean, you know, growing up listening to AM, it's like religion, sports, and people yelling about immigrants. Religion, well, sports, and people. That's all it's ever been. And so liberals don't even know that AM is part of the radio. I think, no, I think also there, there was a feeling that it could be shouty at times. And there also was a huge competition with NPR. Yeah, but NPR is doing a different thing. I, I, I didn't say that that's a valid right. <laughs> fear, but I would say that there was a, a notion that that was... We were trying to meet a need that did not exist, which is that liberals were not looking for somebody to listen to on talk radio. And to the extent that they were... We bike. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we bike and we record programs and time adjust them to a more appropriate time for our kids. Yeah. No, it didn't... I, it was a noble effort. Um, in Chinese, so that they can also learn Mandarin. <laughs> <laughs> Mismanaged um, and noble, but ultimately futile. And, but I, I just thought, I liked doing this gig. I, was, I thought, you know what? I've never thought I'd do anything in broadcasting before, but I like this gig. And maybe I could try to do talk radio. For me, the big leap was going from music radio to talk radio. Because when you're in music radio, there's Dave Matthews in between everything you say. Like, you have time to come up with a new thing. Um, 
And like by the, by the time Air America started, I had my own show on a different station, and I'd put on like a nine-minute Miles Davis song and run up to the main street in Northampton onto the median and hand out tickets to a show. And then by the time the song was over, I would have been able to like get a coffee, pee, hand out the tickets, and go back and come up with something to say. The idea that you'd be on talk radio and the only break you have is commercials, and then you have to come back and talk more seemed very, very difficult to me. That seemed like a very big leap. How did you make that leap? You seem to be doing okay now. Well, you know, I did it weirdly. I used to script my talk radio shows. Oh. Like, I would write them. So I'd write one, depending on which show I had, one, two, or three hours of content per day. Wow. Which is tiring. Uh, I was so admiring. I'm fast-forwarding a little bit to seeing you at the Rachel Maddow show. Um, I was so ad- admiring of how you're breaking news while analyzing it, and it seemed to be just you and another producer who's writing these pieces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how it goes. It's wicked hard. So how can you go over like a, a day in your? Can you go over a, a, a day? I know that no day is the same, but I, I was so, so intrigued that you're having to choose which stories you do, and um, again, create an opinion piece at the same time that you're reporting factual news. Yeah, I, I mean, I think of it as sort of one, one piece. The thing that I find most. Um, enjoyable about my show and the thing that I miss when I take time off and the thing that I really missed when I stopped doing radio for a while when I decided that I wanted to come back to it. Um, I stopped doing radio for a while in order to finish my dissertation um, and I was done off for about six months and then after 9-11 happened I found myself really really wanting to be back on the radio like I, I just wanted to be doing like announcements about blood drives and like wanted to be helpful like I'll do news bulletins I'll read the AP I'll do the weather I'll do snow days I don't care I just want to be back in there and the, that, the thing that I miss is the explanatory power of that kind of broadcasting. Mm-hmm. Like, I just want to be able to help explain things clearly. I think I can look at what's going on and see what the important thing is in the universe of news um, that you might not know about. And I think I can tell you what it is and why you might want to know it. And that is something that I feel compelled to do. I, I feel like I have, a, I have an ability to do that, and I want to do it, and I find it very satisfying. And so it is a blend of opinion um, and journalism, I guess, in a way. But for me, it really is just one thing, which is explaining. And I give my opinion to the extent that I think that it is helpful to have um, context, perspective, or an angle on something in order to understand it better. What's it like having people who rely on you in a way that they say, well, Rachel Maddow said it, and therefore it's true, and they may not check it for themselves. They really just depend on your opinion to form their own. I can just use that as an I statement. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know very much about how I am received in the world in the sense that I don't, I don't know how people see me or use what I do because I sort of purposely isolate myself from it. I don't feel like that would help me be better at it. I feel like it might weird me out. Well, like, what about with Senator Vitter or, or Mac tweeting, you know, negative things about you? Do you hear those things, or do you, do you find out about that stuff? Oh, when public when public figures try to, like, make time by making fun of me? Yes. I take that, I mean, implicitly, it is a great compliment. Wow, David Vitter thinks that he's going to get somewhere that he isn't already as a United States senator by talking about the fact that he thinks I'm too masculine. Right. <laughs> Tell me more, Senator Vitter. <laughs> Um, that's, it's very, that's very, I think that's, I find that exciting. Okay. Um, I also, I don't, I'm not, I don't get, I'm not, I'm not easily offended. Okay. Yeah. Um, you were very thoughtful in speaking out about how you thought that other anchors who are gay should speak out. Um, 
and I know that people like Shepard Fox and Sam Champion and Anderson Cooper, well, Anderson's Cooper has, has since come out. Um, but I wanted to hear about that. Do you feel that way for like actors, let's say for like Eddie Murphy or for John Travolta or Tom Cruise? Like, do you feel like they should come out? Um, I, uh, you know, I don't, I don't feel that differently about it for news anchors than I do for anybody else. I, I sort of feel like mostly my, what I have learned as a person who has lived an adult life as a gay person. I came out when I was 17, so I've never been a non-out adult. And you came out quite publicly. Yeah, that was a whole other story. But as an adult who has been out my whole life, I feel like my life is better than my peers' lives who are closeted. And so I've never lived as a, as a closeted person. And so I can't say my life as a closeted person really sucked and I'm comparing it. But when I look at people who are sort of in my peer group who decided not to come out, the years that they lived closeted were bad years uh, compared to how it was once they came out. And everybody's got to make their own determination about that. But being closeted sucks. It means that you are in danger of being outed. You're having to keep track of shit that you shouldn't have to keep track of. It's like the reason that lying makes you tired. It's because you have to remember a thing other than the real thing because you have to make sure that you don't make, contradict the story that you told to make people believe the lie. And you have to remember that forever. <laughs> Every lie you tell is a lifelong responsibility. <laughs> I'm too lazy to lie. Like I just uh, get exhausted thinking about it. And it's the same. It, it, it gives other people too much power over you. So I think that in general... People have to make their own call, and everybody's got different circumstances, especially the more traveling I've done around the world. Like, people definitely have to make their own circumstances, particularly if it's going to put you in danger. But I think that a lot of times we overestimate how dangerous it would be to come out when really what it is is that we're just nervous. It might help Eddie Murphy's career. I don't know this Mr. Murphy of which you speak. <laughs> um, but in terms of deification, is it, is it odd getting stopped all the time now and, and being noticeably famous? I mean, is that different for you? It doesn't happen that much. It happens a little bit. But um, I think I have to stop wearing my glasses on other people's TV shows. Because otherwise, this is like a great disguise. If people don't know that I wear glasses when I'm not on TV, then yeah. when I, it's like I'm leaving the studio and then... <laughs> I, think you, I think you could dress really girly. That's true. In a frock, no yes. one would know who I yes. was. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, you have this Emmy Award Including winning... Including me. <laughs> <laughs> you have this Emmy Award winning show, which we all love. I wanted to talk a little bit about your Grammy-nominated uh, book, Drift. Thank you. Um, it, it is, is Grammy. And is that weird? It has a sound, the book. It's weird. It's, <laughs> I, I can hear the, the yeah. ocean from here. Yeah. <laughs> um, what inspired you to write about the military and write about war? Um, and our, our our nation's relationship to it. I um, had my own radio show for a few years and have had my own TV show for a few years. And my gig with the people who have hired me in both circumstances has been, you can't tell me what to say. Uh, you can't tell me, not only can you not influence my editorial commentary, but you can't tell me what to cover. Like, I, I get control. That whole thing about seeing the universe of things going on in the news and picking what's important and then saying why it's important. Being able to choose which stories I cover is absolutely key to the freedom that makes the job worthwhile. So nobody's been telling me that I couldn't do this thesis uh, on the radio or on TV. And I think I, over the years, had tried to do little pieces of the thesis. But frankly, this is the argument that is in the book. Um, 
is an argument that takes too long to do in a broadcast format. Um, and so I, th this is an animating argument to me. I think this is, this is something that I just felt like in terms of what's important in the country and what's going on in America and what my generation means and what our moral decisions have been and how our moral decisions now have constrained what our potential future is and all of these big decisions, the argument that is in this book is the big unspoken thing that I felt like I constantly needed to articulate but couldn't do what is it? between commercials, which is that we make war too easy. Yeah. And that we have changed ourselves, not because we're bad people or because somebody's tricked us into it, but because we have made structural changes in our government and in our uh, way of relating to elected officials, mostly since Vietnam, that have made it much easier to go to war than it was before then. I found it fascinating to hear about the divide between how we talk about benefits or now everyone likes to call them, and not everyone, certain people like to call them entitlements and how government is too bloated and then the military is completely devoid from that conversation when we talk Pentagon about- Pentagon bucks are different bucks, yeah. I, I thought you did an incredible job of making that accessible to someone who is not a Rhodes Scholar um, and, and understanding what that is, as well as the privatization of military. I was very um, saddened, but it was important to hear about- Yeah, it turns out it doesn't save any money and it leads to all sorts of totally creepy shit. Um, and also you talked about the sex slavery in the Balkans. I don't want to give out any of the more hot points to anyone here. Yeah, there's a real punchline there. It's the beginning of a chapter, but yeah, that was actually really gruesome. That was gruesome to research. I mean, it's all, I didn't, I didn't, there's no new ground here. You know, this isn't like a, this isn't, this isn't fresh tilled ground that nobody, it's not stories that nobody else had uncovered. I'm just sort of connecting dots in a different way. But writing about the sex slave ring in the Balkans through Dyncor was just, it's harrowing, and then you see, like, you're writing the stuff about what happened in the in the '90s, and the, and and then reading about Dyncor getting all their new contracts now after their new yes. sex slave ring problems, and yeah, never gets better. But I think it's really an a, important critical read because it's all happening now too. I mean, that it's not just simply in the past. Um, now, you grow up with a family who's Catholic. Your father served in the military. You talk about, um, I guess, in laws isn't the right word, but your your partner's family uh, being part of the NRA, mm -hmm. um, what is that like? <laughs> um, we all get along. Uh, you know, uh, my family really likes Susan, really likes my partner. And I think Susan's family likes me. I'm, Susan is more lovable than I am as a, just as a human. Um, <laughs> like in everyday kind of ways. Also, she's very capable. She can do stuff. Like I can, I can do a TV show, but that's like no help on the weekends at all. <laughs> um, and I can make delicious cocktails that yes. you have to spit. <laughs> um, you said spit it out if you don't want it. It's true. It's good. And I've I hidden your spit I wasted. cup. I Okay, See? good. Um, no, it's, I, I like talking with people with whom I disagree. And I, I enjoy especially talking with people um, with whom there is a level of mutual respect and strong disagreement. Um, and like, so my sister-in-law, Susan's sister, who's lifelong NRA member and uh, super wicked conservative, um, and her mom, who like has Fox News on all day, and then my dad, who used to be a Reagan Democrat, but who's now like so far to the left of me, he's like pissed at Amy Goodman. <laughs> like, yeah, she's trying her best. Um, but with things like, the, you know, with the Newton shooting and things like that, when do those things stop feeling like they're just talk? What do you mean? Well, like, actually not with your family, but I was thinking more like when you're talking to um, maybe a senator or a congressman or someone on your, you know, who's a guest on the show or 
and you have really strong feelings about it, when does it feel like, I don't want to just talk about this, I want this person to do something about it in the way that I feel they should be doing something about it? Should I be more specific? No, it's, it, it gets at, for me, the decision that I made to stop being an activist and start being in the media. Mm-hmm. Like having been a full-time activist for a, my whole adult life until I got into the media, I had a really specific idea about what it meant to do activism. So like you're trying to get a policy change. So that means we'll figure out who has power to change the policy. And then you figure out why it is in their interest to not change the policy and what would have to change about their universe of interests in order to make them want to change. And then what leverage do you have on those things that might tip that balance? How could you make the wife of the corrections commissioner in Mississippi talk him into meeting with these HIV positive prisoners' families who he wouldn't otherwise meet with? Because you know that he does everything his wife tells him. Well, how do you get to the wife? Turns out she golfs here. Who do we know who golfs there? Go. Right? Like that... For me, activism is, is math in a way. It's figuring out what's on both sides of the equal sign and then making it come to zero. You know, like it's, it's, it's making it work. And it's a very instrumental thing. And I decided to stop doing that mm-hmm. on a very specific day in my life um, on, on March 3rd, 2004. And I, I ran a bunch of listservs on prison reform and, and was involved in a bunch of different AIDS-related stuff. And I remember I sent out an email on this day saying, listen, I got to take about six months off. I've just taken this radio job in New York, and I think I'm going to try to move down there. And I think it's the move and everything. It's going to be a real hassle. But I, in about six months, I think I'll be able to start doing all this stuff again. But I'm not going to do anything for six months. And I stopped. And that was the last time I ever did activism. And I don't confuse what I am doing now with that process because it is nothing like it. I'm trying to increase the amount of useful information in the world. And if people want to use that to be activists and to get stuff to change, go forth and prosper. But that's, it's not helpful for me to do that with a camera on me. Mm-hmm. You know well, what I mean? wonderful to hear. Yeah. yeah. But does that also mean that since you don't bat for the same team as Nate Silver and he doesn't bat for your team either, you wouldn't think about having a baby with him maybe? <laughs> I got like. I don't want to have a baby with Nate Silver, but that okay. doesn't. I don't want you to take that the wrong way. I'm very pro Nate Silver. I don't, I don't Silver. think he bats for for your team. No, either. I don't so think so a, either. I don't know what he thinks thing. about babies or anything, but no. But here's yeah. a petri dish just in case okay. you change your mind. <laughs> it says, it says, uh, democracy's future. So <laughs> I'll be the surrogate. I'm just trying to do my part. All right, really... I'll get to work. <laughs> <laughs> um, Rachel. It has been such a treat to have you on. I really want to tell people, please go out and buy Drift. It is a really worth it. It's a phenomenal book. Um, thank you so much for making the news accessible. Thank you for being so fun, and thank you for being here. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please check out our website, employeeofthemonthshow.com. That's employeeofthemonthshow.com. You can nominate people. You can give me feedback about the interviews, what you liked, didn't like, people you'd like to hear from. Again, this show is about jobs, work, and culture. So try to get a sense of how people spend their time, what they do with it. We really only, we meaning me, like to only interview interesting, good eggs. The good part meaning that they have a moral compass. I probably will not take someone if they're a dictator or a parking ticket officer, but anyone else who has a really interesting job or career, please feel free to uh, let us know about them. Please donate if you have money. 
we could really use your help. It makes the sound quality that much better. It helps pay for people. And even me, I could afford to have three meals in a day instead of combining. That would be a delight. I really want to thank Ian Mazoff for being just a wonderful partner in crime, as well as all of you for listening. Thank you so, so much. And how did I not thank Lady Parts? Thank you, Lady, for being the best co-host a host could ever have. I'm Katie Lazarus. Be well.